Welcome to Chapter 2. In this chapter, Sally talks about her rehab and about taking control. But um, I guess all that grit and resilience that I learned in those early days of rowing, you know, those those first few years going up to the Olympics, I was able to pull that out. I was able to pull out my Olympic diary and, you know, make sure there was one thing I was grateful for every day. And I was able to find meaning in obstacles. That was a really big one for me. Um, I was able to become a bit of a learner, you know, really make myself a student of my purpose and read as much as I could on neuroplasticity. And I was also able, the fourth thing to do is just, implement daily habits you know of getting out of bed every day and and moving my body and and putting all that research that I was reading about into practice so slowly movement came back it was incredibly slow um, incredibly difficult Um, but after five or six months I was standing upright and able to sort of hobble around the hospital center Um, interestingly though um, the rehab center let me go home on the weekends but I just you know after a few weekends spending time with my family I I surprisingly, I just couldn't go home. I just, it was so overwhelming being so incapable, you know, from being such a capable, athletic, able-bodied to not being able to shower without a rail or not being able to walk around the house without, um, you know, using the walls. And this is during a period when, when you would be wanting, you would normally otherwise would have been the one nurturing, yeah, someone else who's sort of in that same position who can't look after themselves, like. That would have been full on. Absolutely. Yeah, there were three babies in the house. You know, my husband had three <laughs> oh, three babies, you know, and the one the one year old and the six month year old, you know, they were not walking yet. So there were three of us on the floor, you know. And interestingly, all the occupational therapy uh, activities they gave them yeah. were pretty much baby stuff, you know, trying to put shapes in holes and pick up things. So I would sit there with my two children and we would use the same activities and play the same games and I would clap when they walked and they would clap when I walked. So it was a a very strange time. You know, I was an athlete. Yeah, I was an athlete trapped in a baby's body. and um, That's a perspective not many parents would get get (laughs) to be on the same level. Yeah, that's right. And every time someone would do something for me, they were taking away that opportunity for me to learn to do it for myself. So I put that into my children. You know, every time I thought to, you know, pick up something for my child or get them dressed, it would remind me that I'm taking away that opportunity for them to learn. So, so it was true. great parenting advice at the same time, you know, the, the lessons that we can uh, give our kids and ourselves. Um, but it was a, a really crazy time for my husband as well because we had a lot of financial pressures imagine. as well. Yeah, um, everything, you know, he had a full-time job and he was managing our mortgage and I wow. was not working. So it was <laughs> crazy. It was really crazy times. So so that you said you went back home and it was just too much and so you went back to the rehab centre but I don't imagine you wanted to be in the rehab centre by yourself when your family was at home. So you must have been incredibly driven to sort of do what you needed to do to get yourself into a position that you felt you were able to go back and and, um, support them. Yeah, that's true. And it it was just like training for the Olympics. I knew I had a job to do and there was no way I was going to enjoy the, the, the celebrations until I'd got that job done. So I really got my mindset in the right theme that I was training for the Olympics. Um, London, I think at the time. London, Literally, do you mean? Yeah. Or? Well, London 2012 was 90 days away and I knew that okay. 
I had 90 days to see how much improvement I could get at this this point of time. So I worked really hard. There was no hope that I was going to get to London, but my mindset thought like an athlete. It was eat, sleep, train, repeat. And that's all I did in that rehabilitation centre. I, I was a robot. You know, I just, I just focused on what I needed to get better and my reward would be when I got home to my family. But um, So just can I ask a question? You're saying your goal was the Olympics and I'm unsure whether you're meaning literally you were like, I am going to go to the Olympics, <laughs> you know, rowing in London or you're meaning I'm going to align my rehab goals to the timing leading into the yeah that that's a good question there was no way I was going to the Olympics but I had to trick my mind and I actually had to trick myself that I was going to the Olympics I even called okay so you legitimately wow well I tricked myself and it sounds crazy saying this but I did call up the physio from the Olympic team and the coaches and they knew that I was not capable in going to the Olympics but I just had to get my mindset right. I had to remember what I used to eat, yep. you know, for fuel, for training. I had to remember what, what exercises wow. I did. And I'd go back into doing squats, you know, and, and bench presses, you know, just with one arm. I would do all these sort of things that I did to get myself to the games because that's the only way I personally knew how to train my body was to train like an Olympic athlete. So in my wheelchair, I'd wheel my wheelchair up to the hospital bed. I'd lock the wheelchair out and then I'd try and stand up out of the wheelchair with my arms doing a rowing motion and I'd either fall forward to the bed or back into the wheelchair, but at least I was up and down and moving. So I was trying to replicate the rowing action um, as a hemiplegic, as, you know, paralysed down the one side because I knew I had these nerve, these neurons. I knew that I could activate them. I really wanted to reconnect with that rowing body again um, and that's the only way I knew how was to visualise movement and feel the rowing oars in my hand and feel a crosswind on my face um, I just had to had to really change my mindset and trick my body and trick my mind because I had nowhere to go. I was in a pretty um, – I was in the trenches. I didn't know what to do. You've mentioned a couple of times neuroplasticity and how you knew – you obviously had some understanding of the brain's ability to heal and to, um, to make these changes. Was that messaging you were getting through your rehab um, – medical team or or how did you come across that knowledge and what did that look like? Yeah, well, this was 2012 and I couldn't find anything. I could barely find anything locally about neuroplasticity. I had to do a lot of research over in the States about um, CI therapy, um, neuro, um, uh, neuroplasticity. There wasn't a lot of information around. So um, I did a lot of myself, my own rehab program. I wrote my own program and a lot of the program I did after I'd done the official program. Um, amazingly enough, my rowing partner from the 2004 Olympics had a bike accident. She was racing in the women's tour down under. Um, she'd just won the national championship for the, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it was the road cycling she won the nationals for, and she had a brain injury. So there she was in Adelaide and there I was, um, I was actually over in New Zealand and we were mm -hmm. both reading on neuroplasticity and learning how to walk together. So it was quite unreal to have one, um, I guess, broken uh, Olympic record just years before and there we were both unable to walk. So we used each other a lot to um, find yeah. out the latest research and set our goals accordingly and, and, and go for this. Hmm. So how were you even aware of it? If, if, you know, as you say, you were having to read basically from information from the US, what, where did you get the tip off about it in the first place? 
there's a book that I was given called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. Um, and I got it in the audio book um, and that changed my life. In fact, that actually saved my life because there's some wonderful case studies of other brain injury survivors and, and how they've managed to, to progress and maybe perhaps even improve their IQ or improve their physical ability from you know before to after. Um, so that's a read that I recommend to anyone that's wanting to know more about neuroplasticity and how to, how to maximise your brain and, um, and improve after some sort of brain injury. Absolutely, I'd agree with that. Yeah, so many success stories and I didn't know until that point that my brain was plastic and I had the ability to change it because I was in a rehabilitation centre that was for elderly stroke survivors and many of those survivors were moving towards palliative care because there wasn't a lot of improvement and they were elderly and I sort of, that was my benchmark. I didn't really know what else was out there. I'd so um, that book, The Brain That Changed Itself, set me on an amazing journey on discovering some of the amazing things that were happening um, in research over in America for brain survivor or brain injury survivors. So I felt, Absolutely. and I felt empowered. Um, I think often when we write our own training program, we take ownership. It really helps our recovery. Um, so I was very driven about getting some program down um you know, in my head or, you know, on my computer and making sure I followed that. And that was just simply having a balloon blown up and playing um, volleyball, you know, until 11 o'clock at night, just, you know, when people had gone to sleep, just bouncing that um, balloon around on my weak side in, in hoping to reconnect those neural pathways. And specifically for stroke, like there would have been a whole lot of exercises that the team were giving you and so you were completing those and then you've mentioned that you were giving yourself your own exercises that were from your previous programs in the lead up you know rowing specific yeah are there any like did you find that in the recovery from stroke where you're obviously paralyzed on one side you've got full function in the other that um any specific um exercises or practices that you would do in that program were more effective than others or that you would mm. really recommend to people? Yeah, I'd recommend, um, you know, visualisation was a big thing for me and those that have lost some sort of sensation in one part of their body, if you can find a hobby that, you know, you can feel when you think about, then that can reconnect those neurons. I had a friend that was a stroke survivor that was a golfer and he was able to reconnect through golf. So he really went back into visualising himself on the greens. You know, what did it feel like on his fingers to hold the golf stick? What did it feel like to swing? You know, what did it feel like to that hit that sweet spot with the ball? And that sort of helped him reconnect his body, the neurons back. And it, it does sound a bit crazy, but visualisation is just neuroplasticity. It's just about feeling smelling, hearing, you know, just reconnecting all the senses back to the movement. So for me, that was rowing, you know, feeling the crosswind on my face and the hand was in my hand, the, the lactic acid in my legs. So if you can find a hobby, whether it's a piano or the guitar or something you did pre, um, pre-injury, pre I really believe Okay, so that, that you've got those, those sensations and you can picture yeah, all of those things yeah, realistically. Absolutely. So, the more realistic, and are you the saying, better. Are you saying that you would... You kind of touched on this earlier, but say if you were lying in bed, was this you were physically not moving, but you were visualizing with your eyes closed? That's the right. Movements Tra- you when would I be say doing in the rowing, boat. when I say I was, you know, eat, sleep, train, repeat for the Olympics, I was lying on my back, 
completely still but visualizing the okay. movement you know i could feel the lactic acid in my legs i could feel my heart rate racing my body wasn't yeah. moving but i could it was like i was back at the games i just had to take my pla- my head to a a place that was familiar and how long would you do that because that's that's pretty exhausting like it's quite yeah. mentally taxing to do that yeah absolutely with brain injuries or any sort of thing like that it, it was exhausting you know just just thinking about you know the connection of my thumb on the end of a rowing handle was exhausting but yeah, i guess yeah. um i just pushed myself as hard as i could every day you know every moment every waking moment i tried to reconnect with a rowing boat um and it is exhausting and when i was being told to rest my brain i was quite confused um because my understanding from all of my research was to be pushing the brain at this time to be really stretching you know those first three months are really important after after brain injury um so i did go against the grain in what i was being told here in australia but i believe things have changed since so the australian way is now to push you push yourself with neuroplasticity but yeah where i was in 2012 it was told i was told to rest my brain were your team treating team were they aware that you were you had this whole other side to your training no, that they you were weren't. Doing. Was that in yeah. parallel, or was this after no, that? No, it was all in parallel. Um, I was in a public okay. rehabilitation <laughs> centre. There weren't a lot of resources there. Um, I was told to rest my brain. Um, you know, I was. <laughs> oh, you didn't. It, it, <laughs> but that would have been a bit scary because I imagine if you're hearing that messaging as well, you would have. There would have been a bit of uncertainty about what should I rest or yeah, should I be pushing. No, I, I okay. was angry i was just the angriest patient in that rehab center i swear there were devil horns poking out of my head every time they spoke to me i was furious i was i did what they wanted me to do but then i wanted to do more because that's what olympic athletes do you know they do more and um they didn't they didn't really know i was an olympic athlete i i keep always keep my sport very private um i'm not even sure why i didn't tell them i think i was just trying to do the right thing and then take ownership after hours and and drive that goal and uh, get better because I think they set a goal that my goal should be to pick up my baby and I wanted my goal to be yeah. to be able to run again because running is, is my passion. Yeah, you were like not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so I think from an early on I didn't trust them. I didn't feel like we were aligned and that's why I was so yes. angry and driven that after hours is my time to rehabilitate myself. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of Rocky-esque. Oh, man, I was an angry girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so i knew the right thing to do was to agree to that um but internally i had other goals you know i had a picture of myself wakeboarding um up on my hospital wall so i thought that would be a really nice thing to do again um you know yep. that's a really empowering feeling um but my heart was with running and i really wanted to run again so um those goals, you know, I sort of had to keep to myself because each time I mentioned those things, you know, I would be told <laughs> by the medical team, don't get your hopes up, you know. Um, but I always didn't knew, want to hear that. Yeah, no, that made me incredibly angry. So the wakeboarding picture that was stuck up on my wall, I ended up um, drawing devil horns um, on myself wakeboarding <laughs> <laughs> because it just reminded me that I needed to be angry and I needed to be yep. driven if I ever wanted to wakeboard and run again. Um, to get there. Yeah. And even today I do get up and wakeboard. I'm not very good, um, but I just get up and I can, all I can think about is that picture on the wall and how proud I am that how lucky am I and how proud am I to be able to do this again, you know, and it's just a really empowering feeling to push yourself and go beyond and, and know that um, you don't know what's possible really until you put yourself in these situations. 
for, for, for other people who are in that setting, like it sounds like you were really driven and few, like the, the word that just comes to mind repeatedly listening to you tell these stories is, is just your drive. Um, but also as the other word, as you mentioned, would be angry, like anger. Yeah. Is that something you would recommend? Like if someone was listening to this and they were sitting in a rehab centre at the moment and they were following all the guidance and, you know, that's, that's um, you sound like you had quite a different approach, but a lot of the time if you're getting medical advice, we're very trusting of yeah. the guidance we're being given and we think that's the best possible advice and often it is, but, but sometimes it is good to question things. Yeah. Would you, I mean, what advice would you have for people in that setting? Well, I think, I think all of us feel angry. I think that's a common emotion. We all feel angry and we all start to question why me. And I think I managed to channel all of that anger into empowerment by being, I guess, a student of my purpose and reading as much as I could. And I started to read and feel educated, you know, and actually feel like this is my, this is something I own. This is something I can change. This is something that I need to take charge of if I'm going to get myself out of this situation. So I think I was fortunate to channel all that emotion into empowerment and then take it on and own own my, my own situation. And I'm fortunate now I do get to go and speak to a few hospitals and that's where I do tell the doctors and nurses that if you can just give the patients a little bit of ownership, then they can take that with them and use that to feel good about themselves and feel like they're not a victim, but they are, I guess, more of a, well, they're not a passenger, they're a pilot. And, and it's, it's yep. about feeling like you're in charge, you're the pilot, you're the captain of your ship. You know, you're not yep. the passenger. You own your rehab and what yeah. you're doing. And that's the biggest thing that, you know, biggest message I want to get across to those of us that, that do have these neurological, um, you know, issues or concerns that at the end of the day, it's our problem and we have to take ownership. We can't be a passenger. We have to be the pilot here. And there is a lot of research out there and there is a lot of second opinions you can get. And I really encourage people to take that ownership and make it their problem, not someone else's problem. When you're talking about, you know, having to dig deep and how difficult it was and what hard work it is, I'm, I suppose in, in my mind I'm seeing a picture of just, I guess, the, the effort associated with persisting to improve and persisting to um, do the exercises and do the visualisation and not accept your state or, or the, I guess, your recovery as other people saw it. Is that correct or, or can you um, correct me there? Yeah, um, I was given a lot of advice by the medical team as to what to do. Um, which is great, um, but I knew as an Olympic athlete, training is a twenty-four-seven job, and I knew I needed yep. to really stick to a strong routine um, and good habits. So I needed to tick that I got eight hours sleep. I needed to tick that I'd perhaps done three hundred squats that day, and squat might be just pushing the wheelchair up to the hospital bed, locking the wheelchair in place, and trying to move your body up and down and falling forward to the bed or dropping back into the chair or even falling out of the chair, you know, taking big risks, you know. But pushing so yourself, pushing to, yourself. To, to do something yeah. new. And I knew I had no option. I knew I wouldn't be happy if I was stuck in this body. Yeah, so after about uh, four months I was starting to get upright and, and moving um, and I felt like I was making my way around the rehabilitation centre and able to get my own food and dress and do those sorts of things. But I needed a new challenge. Um, so I found a, 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 a 
a new nurse that had just come into the um, the setting and I asked if I could just step outside and leave the building. Um, so I combed my hair over because I had half of a shaved head from the surgery and uh, pulled my <laughs> sleeve over the hospital bracelet and put my phone in my pocket and I went outside the building and um, I staggered for So naughty. Uh, very naughty, but <laughs> I needed, I really needed to push some boundaries. I was a pretty fired up patient <laughs> yep. at this stage. I just wanted to know whether I could cope outside the rehab centre because it was so safe inside and so secure and I just needed to know if I'd be able to go back home soon. So I staggered 400 metres to the nearest bus stop and um, probably to the traffic. It was peak hour traffic. I probably looked really unstable and cautious but, you know, in my head it was so much effort to get that leg, you know, to move forward and and everything like that. So um, when a bus came I managed to get on the bus, which was pretty exciting. And um, I was just so happy. I had the biggest <laughs> grin on my face and we were winding all the Can way imagine. on the bus to the CBD and I thought I just want to get to the city, have a coffee and then hop back on the bus and come back to the rehab centre. You know, that would just show me that I've just got this sorted and I'll be back home soon. So um, we're winding around the streets and the guy next to me in his suit was looking at me really strangely. So we're all wedged on this bus. It's peak hour traffic. And this man's just staring at me. And I'm thinking, what is he looking at? And as I look over to see what it is, I'm as horrified as he is because my paralyzed arm had actually fallen onto his lap on the last corner. Onto his lap. And I had to pick up my arm <laughs> off his lap, wedge it between with your other arm. Wedge it between my knees. <laughs> I was so humiliated, so ashamed. And I just got off at Do the Do you think he got, got it at that point? Ah, uh, I don't know. I did flash the hospital bracelet, but I don't know if he thought I was oh, wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where, but I thought that could be my excuse and I got off there at the next bus stop. But, you know, just to feel that I'd hit my limit, I didn't know whether to be ashamed or excited, you know, that I had, you know, found that limit and needed to head back to that rehab centre. Yeah. So did you get your coffee? Um, I did actually. I found a great little shop <laughs> on the way Beautiful. back. So at least I yeah, found my boundaries, which is good. Yeah. Had, had they realised you'd left? No, no. Um, you know, it was a pretty busy public rehab centre and I, I think they had a lot of trust in their patients. They probably didn't think a patient would go to the city and um, get a coffee and come back. So maybe I pushed the boundaries there, but yeah, so be it. That's the end of Chapter 2. In Chapter 3... Sally shares her main recovery learnings.